Welcome to episode 235 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, I'm joined by our guest uh, uh, for the interview is uh, Doug, uh, no last name allowed, uh, the general counsel of the, or the chief legal officer of uh, GCHQ, which is the United Kingdom's version of NSA plus uh, a whole bunch of other stuff, as we'll hear. Uh, also joined today by Nick Weaver, uh, who is a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer at UC Berkeley. Uh, Matt Hyman uh, is a visiting scholar at the National Security Institute, formerly with the National Security Division of DOJ. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and today's host. Uh, why don't we jump right into the story that won't die. Uh, Nick, uh, I can't believe that we're going to end up talking about the super micro alleged uh, hardware hack by the Chinese again for another week, and we still don't know if it's true. Yeah, and the the problem is, is the Bloomberg has doubled down without any independent evidence. So the new Bloomberg piece is describing a different attack, which unlike the original attack, is not plausible in my mind um, because it's describing Trojan Ethernet jacks. And Ethernet jacks need a lot of processing power if you want to do something in the jack, and the jacks are unpowered. So although the original attack proposed was not only frighteningly plausible, but I could develop the infrastructure for it for a million bucks, uh, hint, hint, NSA, um, <laughs> But uh, the the new one, it just doesn't make sense. And although it has a named person behind it, he, there's no evidence provided. The companies all deny it. And at this point, between all the denials, including like Rob Joyce of the NSA with his very strong denial. And the director of the FBI and, and DHS, all of them, it, one variant or another of don't believe everything you read or we can't confirm that, right? Um, no, the Rob Joyce's was even more. We have no bleeping clue what this is. And if you guys have anything, please tell us. We want to know about it. <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, yeah, he, he, he said, I see a, He said, I see a lot of intelligence and I don't think I've seen this. So, yeah, it, uh, yeah. It, it, it's it's pretty remarkable because Bloomberg has not backed off at all. They say they've got the uh, the sources uh, um, and. Uh, you know, you just have to either trust them or trust all the people who are denying it. Uh, I, I, I have to say there's a legal issue here. Uh, um, the companies that are denying this, uh, if they are actually lying, uh, have a real SEC problem, an FTC problem as well. Yeah. And at this point, I really think we, there'll be a tendency to call this a false alarm. I think we should call it an alarm clock. We need to get much more serious about designing things. So, for example, the iPhone actually does it right. You could not use this attack against the iPhone because the iPhone is designed not to even trust Foxconn. Or not even to trust its own motherboard then. Correct. It doesn't even trust its own motherboard. The only thing the brains in the CPU trust are stuff signed by Apple. So you'd actually have to sabotage the CPU itself, you could not use the technique described in the Bloomberg article. So one of the things that, that influences me here uh, is that these guys have come up with stories in the past that uh, uh, nobody else has been able to confirm. Uh, there was the great story that I, I believed for years that the Russians uh, had been spotted walking along a Turkish uh, uh, pipeline by an infrared camera that was the only remaining uh, way of watching the, uh, uh, the pipeline. And uh, um, uh, no one's confirmed that one. And the suggestion that NSA was using the Heartbleed bug for years before it was discovered uh, has been – pretty thoroughly denied by NSA and nobody has come back to say that wasn't true. There's a, there's a track record here of very controversial stories that, uh, that don't have much in the way of later validation. Yeah. And the other thing is, is some reporters, notably Brian Krebs, 
Brian Krebs came forward and said he had heard the same rumors about Super Micro, but was unable to get confirmation. I'm going to suggest that what we need for the new world of uh, uh, journalism is not a Pulitzer, but a Bulitzer. This is just bull. Uh, and it's it, once we discover that a story is bull, we should uh, we should award Pulitzers to uh, to the journalists who've produced them. But, uh, you know, there's a long history of this. There was that guy in uh, the New York Times, Walter Durante, who wrote a whole series of stories in the 30s covering up the Ukraine famines and the use of famine as a political weapon uh, because he thought, you know, the Russians were the, the Soviets at bottom had the good of humanity at heart and what's a few Ukrainians uh, uh, if you're trying to achieve uh, um, a, a global transformation. I, so, you know, journalists do sometimes let their ideologies get in the way of uh, uh, telling the truth. And it is possible that that happened here. Yeah. Or what's more likely is some really bad game of telephone that the problem is, is the reporters in question were their sources do not seem to be the engineers. Mm -hmm. So there's somebody who heard this and didn't hear the final outcome or um, heard a version of this and is attaching things they heard to a, the wrong story. Right. So, for example... Apple did ditch Supermicro three years ago, but the reporting at the time, which I think may be confirmed, is that Supermicro screwed up and released a sabotaged BIOS, not a sabotaged motherboard that was downloaded. Apple caught it and goes, basically, these guys are too incompetent to buy it from again. Yeah. So there's probably something here, and it's it, it sounds as though it may be a good deal smaller uh, this time around. Uh, but it's I have to say it's only a matter of time before it turns out to be true, right? Especially because if you're China, you look at it. Uh, if you've done the time, you might as well do the crime. <laughs> All right. Speaking of China, uh, the uh, Trump administration continues to draw a bead on China. Uh, the CFIUS process, uh, uh, Michael Beaver has reminded me not to assume that everybody knows what CFIUS is. CFIUS is uh, CFIUS, the uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It's been around for uh, 40 or 50 years, uh, and it decides whether we're going to let foreigners invest in U.S. companies. And it's gone through several cycles uh, of uh, fear of foreign investment, uh, the latest being fear of Chinese investment. And that is very real and very substantial. And we're in the process of reordering all of our legal institutions around a fear of uh, um, a, a challenge by China. Uh, CFIUS has been rewritten by uh, uh, the uh, Congress and uh, – it is now up to the Treasury Department to implement rules, uh, some of which are quite complicated and could add enormously to the burden of uh, uh, the Treasury Department uh, in which, because of the large number of people who will have to say, oh, yeah, I made that investment. Oh, yeah, I made that investment. Is it OK? Um, a, and Treasury has risen sort of to the challenge uh, with uh, uh, a, a pilot program that they released this week. Uh, uh, Matt, uh, what did they uh, actually say they were going to do? Well, they said that they were going to have some interim rules until they have their permanent rules. And the pilot program is part of those interim rules. And it covers about 27 industries, which depending on how elastic uh, you view those categories, covers nearly everything of importance. Staggering. This was the thing that surprised me. I expected them to use this pilot program I thought it was actually a clever thing on the part of uh, Congress to say, do a pilot and yeah. see how many uh, filings you get. But uh, the list of industries that they wanted covered was staggering. It covers seemingly everything except plastic wrap. Right. I mean, it's just it's 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 a wide range and it's all the industries that Chinese actors would want to invest in or for that matter, any other foreign investor. Um, and the other piece of it that I thought was interesting was this, you know, and, and clearly the new CFIUS uh, legislation 
uh, is moving away from the notion of foreign control to just any sort of foreign presence. So it talks about uh, you must report if the foreign investor has access to non-public information, which Mm -hmm. would be seemingly any investor and any entity would have some non-public information, or you have the power to nominate a board member. So um, I, I think the other thing just it's useful for listeners to keep in mind is while a lot of the energy around CFIUS reform was clearly focused on China, if you're doing a deal and you've got a French party that's interested, you've got an Irish party or wherever they are in the world that's looking at buying U.S. technology, uh, it may scoop them into that deal. So, yes, China certainly is the focus, but the new CFIUS reforms can apply across the board. It's, the, the pilot program, though, is focused on it's China. It's focused on China. But uh, the point I'm making is the, the new beefier CFIUS applies to all players. Yes, and in the long run, it will. Yeah. Uh, but I'm guessing that what uh, Treasury is going to do is see just how much stuff comes out mm-hmm. of the woodwork uh, yep. by focusing on China, which, you know, since that's their worry, yeah. it makes sense for them to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then once they see that is the, the, how many deals come forward – they will uh, titrate exactly so. uh, what they're going to require for everybody. I think that's right. And you could assume that there are further rules that might uh, give different actors different planes of scrutiny. So one could imagine that China and Russia would be on one level and Switzerland might be on a different level. Right. And I, I, I will also say um, the good news for Treasury uh, is that even before they put out this, this rule, um, I thought that Chinese investment was already waning pretty substantially uh, as the Chinese government uh, uh, issues guidance that says, yeah, maybe it's not worth doing. Uh, And and that means that Treasury may not get as many deals as they were afraid of. I think that's right, Um, particularly given that the push by leadership in China to domesticate a lot of these technologies rather than going out to the U.S. to buy them. They want to create them at home because that gives them maximum control. So when they create them at home, however, the uh, Justice Department has a message. Don't create them at home by stealing them from American companies. Nick, uh, uh, those of us who said, you know, indictments are okay, but they're not really – they don't really have an impact. Uh, We reckoned without the reach of the U.S. government, uh, which has actually snatched a guy off the streets of Belgium uh, uh, who was spying for China and pulled him into the United States to prosecute. And good on the Justice Department. I think this is the distinction between the human side and the the SIGINT computer uh, break-in side of the industrial espionage. So this guy was targeting GTE engine or sorry GE engines and others, but it was a largely human-driven scheme. Invite potential contacts to give a visiting lecture in China and scope them out then. And so that requires a lot of local presence in both U.S. and Europe in order to do this recruitment. And so as a consequence, being within range of U.S. law enforcement, he is going to be a guest of the federal government for a good long time. I do like the computer hacking indictments, too, though, because they allow the U.S. government to put its cards on the table and actually attribute some of these things like the the North Korea one. I found really insightful as cards on the table evidence that North Korea is hacking for profit as a money source. Yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, uh, there is value in laying that out, uh, going through the exercise of saying, what can we uh, declassify? And I'm sure there's uh, uh, a, a great fight under the covers uh, about what goes into those indictments, but uh, there is value in doing that. Um, I, I noticed that one of the stories over the weekend was about intrusion truth uh, uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, and I can't help thinking that Bellingcat and Intrusion Truth and some of these other uh, companies or these other quasi-anonymous uh, uh, sources about um, Russian and Chinese cyber attacks uh, might not be benefiting from some of the intelligence as well that's being released in a a fashion that doesn't attribute it back to the United States. Uh, uh, some of the stuff that's coming out in Intrusion Truth is also very uh, focused and uh, uh, would require 
that you do something more than just look at the uh, at the source code of the malware. I haven't looked at them as much as Bellingcat. Bellingcat at least is doing a huge amount that show their work. So yeah, and and I well, let me put it this way: I if I were in government, I'd be saying, why the hell don't we have some place where we can anonymously embarrass the uh, Russians and the Chinese uh, and out their uh, uh, their tools uh, and their people. Um, and after uh, all, they have WikiLeaks. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and DC leaks. Uh, uh, and so you know, and and WikiLeaks really hurt the U.S. intelligence community. So the idea of giving it back is going to have an enormous appeal. So it, maybe it's not intrusion truth, maybe it's not Bellingcat, but I got to believe that somebody has found a way uh, to channel or funnel information of the, that they think will be embarrassing to the attackers uh, uh, on the other side uh, to the public sphere. Um, okay, so um, there's one place that doesn't want to choose sides in this growing uh, uh, battle between uh, uh, authoritarian and non-authoritarian governments, and that turns out to be Silicon Valley. Uh, um, Google is saying, yeah, uh, you know, we're just not going to bid on those AI contracts that the Pentagon has uh, uh, put up for, uh, has asked people to bid on because it's inconsistent with our values. Uh, you know, I kind of wonder how they're also developing a search engine for China consistent with their values, but they're getting some flack uh, locally uh, from their own employees about that. Uh, but it's very disappointing to see their employees unable to draw a distinction between the Chinese government and the U.S. government. I think actually their employees are drawing a parallel of negative to both, that the problem is, is the greatest trick the devil ever did was convince the world he didn't exist. Number two was convincing people and employees that don't be evil meant something. <laughs> and so Google ended up hiring a lot of people with a very strong idealistic streak. And when the rubber hits the road, it tends to produce conflicts, even though, let's face it, Google is a spy agency that makes the NSA uh, seem embarrassed by the amount of data they collect. It's true. They don't they don't um, they don't they don't have the, the near the storage or frankly probably the uh, sophisticated algorithms. Uh, um, so uh, Matthew, I guess I should say, hey, is this just a bluster because they probably weren't going to get the contract anyway? Uh, it certainly seems that way. I mean, when you hear the phrase bearing the lead yeah. and you read the news clipping that says, well, it doesn't jive with our AI values and by the way, Portions of the contract were out of scope with our current certifications. It certainly makes okay. me think. Yes. <laughs> it certainly makes me think that. So they uh, had not even qualified for no, this contract. So no. this is grandstanding after a fashion. Well, it's 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 making the most out of a, a loss, right? So we know we can't win this. So let's put some stilts up and and uh, sort of proclaim our values yeah. along the way. But you know, I I wish their values did not. Uh, um, assume that helping the Pentagon was a bad thing. Uh, there'll be a, there'll be a time when uh, helping the Pentagon will seem essential is my guess sometime in the next 15 years. Yeah. Well, I, I it, it's it's consistent with uh, most of what Alphabet does, which is what do they think is best for the bottom line? And right now that's helping China and not helping the U.S. But that, as you say, may well change soon. All right. Um, well, and they're <laughs> they're they're struggling to figure out a way to help the EU, uh, uh, mm -hmm. Google is, um, has appealed the massive fine that uh, was imposed on them. Uh, um, it, did we learn anything from the appeal, Matthew? Not especially, other than um, I think it's just a useful reminder for people that think antitrust is a panacea for what they perceive as market ills. That I would suggest that we'll probably go through a similar experience as we did with Microsoft 15 mm -hmm. years ago or so, which is by the time we get to the end of the story, the technology and the market dynamics will change so radically; it's virtually meaningless to the marketplace. This was, this was a shopping uh, display bias, uh, uh, not a shocking one, but, yeah. but shopping. I, you know, I never use Google 
to shop for stuff. Uh, they could have all the display bias in the world and it wouldn't affect me. And I suspect that's true for most people. So this is a $5 billion fine for doing something that didn't work. Yeah, it, it, it's related to that as well as the notion that Google was paying uh, manufacturers to favor Chrome and ah, search right. over other Android platforms. But again, I think by the time this is all resolved years from now, uh, it'll be virtually meaningless because the players and the platforms will have changed. So part, but you know, what does happen is companies go through a period of believing that they don't need governments and mm -hmm. they can just do what they want and mm -hmm. governments will suck it up. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they have a conflict. And then, you know, the EU or somebody just comes down on them like a ton of bricks right. and they are permanently maimed, IBM. Uh, was permanently maimed by the U.S. antitrust case. Uh, Microsoft, which wanted to, to do to be the anti-IBM, we will never be maimed mm -hmm. by the government. We will, by God, just soldier on. They're maimed and and right. have changed their tune. And and uh, I suspect that uh, uh, for good or ill, Google and Facebook are now in the sights of the uh, uh, the ton of bricks that the EU has prepared. I think that's right. I think you could also look at it as uh, when governments do this, um, the size of the buildings for the respective company in that capital grow immensely. Yes. And the number of lobbyists grow immensely. So maybe in a roundabout way, the EU views, reviews the, uh, views this uh, as an employment opportunity for their citizens to go work for Google, who will now have a much bigger presence in Brussels. So if you wondered why you listened, if you were a law student uh, to the uh, podcast. It's because we give you career advice like that. You should be preparing your resume so that you can send it into the European Commission uh, or maybe the Justice Department's uh, uh, antitrust uh, division uh, because understanding technology will give you a career for the next 15 or 20 years. Exactly. All right. Uh, um, so DOD cybersecurity, this is relevant to uh, uh, the uh, question of uh, hardware hacks. Uh, um, our weapon systems, GAO says, are not actually all that good. And the White House says that's because our entire in defense industrial base is on uh, uh, life support. Uh, Nick, did you take a look at those two reports uh, uh, and how worried should we, should we be? I skimmed both of them. The GAO one is very worrisome because the problem is, is it's, I think, a large outgrowth of how the DOD has designed their networks. You have system low side, which is assumed to be a cesspool, but system high side, everybody is trusted. But that means that if an adversary can get in system high in one spot, you can do all sorts of things. The industrial base report I didn't find as impressive because, let's face it, we could not build fighter jets for three years and it wouldn't be a problem. What we really need to focus on is what systems do we trust in our manufacturing. So because a problem of trust in manufacture cannot be corrected, a problem of supply just um, disrupts future purchasing. And like, as I said, some of the things don't read right. Like there was a complaint about the U.S. manufacturing base for rigid flex circuit boards and many layer boards and high precision assembly dying. And frankly, that is a pile of bovine excrement. Why do I know? Because I build my own boards by contracting out to a Silicon Valley that will do 20, 30, 40 layer rigid flex boards with ITAR compliance. So I know that part of the industrial base, there's at least some in the U.S. and it's not as dire a picture as that report suggested. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. I, 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 it is interesting um, to see how the Trump administration and the president's uh, unhappiness with China um, you know, this, this is a lesson in bureaucratic behavior. The president came in saying we should be nicer to Russia, we should be meaner to NATO and to the European Union uh, and meaner to China. And the 
bureaucracy has picked that up and said, uh, yeah, not so much on Russia. And uh, we can be a little meaner to the uh, EU and a little bit meaner to uh, to NATO, but we'll tell them it's because they're not spending enough. Uh, and then China, yes, sir, very much so, so, sir. And they've gone out and overachieved uh, to the point where everybody in the U.S. government is thinking of ways to strengthen the U.S. military and quasi-military posture against China because they were worried about that even under Obama. And so they're happy to get guidance that accords with their uh, uh, pre-existing concerns. I think that means that uh, Trump's effect on our relationship with China is permanent and transformative. Uh, and this is all part of worrying about uh, a future in which we have a peer or it's a near peer in that in that we are almost as big as they are uh, for the future. And uh, the U.S. is struggling to figure out how do we build a uh, uh, strong geopolitical situation where we can't count on our economy to power us past the competition. So bad news. Um, I, speaking of, of picking sides in the great battle. Uh, Vietnam has said uh, to uh, Silicon Valley, you know, we sort of like the idea of local data, uh, localization of data as well uh, for national security reasons, etc. Uh, and Silicon Valley is saying, but, 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 but Ira Magaziner and, and uh, you know, John Perry Barlow and Vietnam is saying, yeah, never mind. Um, uh, uh, Matthew? I think it's uh, another link in the chain. I mean, yeah. so this is what Russia did a few years ago. This, you know, Vietnam's doing it. I think everyone's going to do it at some point. There's no downside for a national government to not do it. So that makes you know our national one of our national strategy uh, statements uh, on cyber uh, coming out of the Trump administration was all the stuff that John Pirate Perry Barlow lyrics could have uh, produced, right? Uh, uh, it ought to, the internet ought to be open and free and there shouldn't be national boundaries. Uh, I, and you kind of wonder when they're going to give that up. You would have thought that would have been something that the, the Trump administration would have chucked overboard. Yeah, well, I, they can they can cling to this dream or they can get with reality because I think that's the march. So, you know, clinging to the dream has a cost because they end up saying to policymakers, well, you can't do that because it's inconsistent with what we've right. been telling the world that you ought to have a, a, a global open Internet, uh, which means that uh, when um, people say, you know, that data shouldn't shouldn't leave the country. Uh, the State Department and uh, others say, oh, you can't you can't have a policy like that because it's inconsistent with our international posture, which everybody else is ignoring. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think you could also wind up with a situation where you have different realms of kind of these walled Internet states. So I think you could have localized data in places like Vietnam and China and Russia, and you could have localized data between the U.S. and the EU within the confines where data flows within those boundaries. But I, I think they're going to be pockets of more author authoritarian regimes that say, we want all the data and all the servers here. Yeah. I, look, I'm, my, my thought is, uh, especially for the Russians, there may come a time when we say, you know, you want to have your own internet? Let us help you with that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, oh, did, we, did we just drag up all of your cables to the outside world? Yeah. <laughs> You know, what a shame. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, that may be a more effective sanction than uh, whining about the openness of the Internet. OK, uh, that concludes our news roundup. And I'm on to the interview, which I actually recorded uh, uh, on Friday uh, when I was, uh, you know, <laughs> we had Doug in the studio and me trying to do this from uh, Italy. Um, I'm afraid we got an Italian uh, uh, internet connection, so I hope the audio is good. But let's turn to Doug. This is the first interview I've done with someone whose last name is more or less classified, can't be used. Uh, uh, it is the uh, uh, chief uh, legal officer and I think international policy uh, uh um, uh, expert at GCHQ, which is the equivalent of NSA uh, in uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, Doug, uh, as he's asked us to call him, uh, uh, is the equivalent of general counsel of the National Security Agency, more or less the job I had. Uh, 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 Doug, I, I, my first question, I guess, for you is, um, 
if you have to have a pseudonym, shouldn't you pick something sexier than Doug? <laughs> well, the problem is if you come late to the party, you've got to take what's left on the table. Um, and sadly, Saul Goodman had been uh, taken by someone else. So I'll have to live with Doug for the time being. Thank, thank you for that, though, Stuart. Yes, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you did it. It's, uh, it's actually not a, uh, not a bad pseudonym because no one would guess that it was a pseudonym. Uh, uh, so Doug's last name is not to be used, uh, and uh, we've agreed to that. Uh, but he is glad to talk to us about what it's like to be uh, the chief lawyer for GCHQ. And I, I'd like to kind of jump into that because when I was at NSA uh, as the general counsel, um, we envied uh, the British, their oversight, which was restrained, more or less um, singular as opposed to multiple, uh, and uh, um, uh, often could be accomplished uh, in an afternoon including the drinks. Uh, and that has changed, is my sense, that there is a good deal more oversight. It's much more um, uh, exacting than uh, the uh, uh, oversight uh, position that was used that we're used to in the UK. And I wondered, uh, uh, Doug, if you could just give us a sense of how uh, oversight for uh, signals intelligence and intercepts has evolved over the last, uh, say, 10 years. Sure, I'll do my best. And I, I have to say, I wouldn't necessarily agree with every <laughs> characterization of the, the regime, <laughs> at least in my experience and the, and the experience of my team members. Uh, for some time, we've had a, a rigorous oversight regime, and it's come in a few different forms. There's the, the judicial commissioners now, as you rightly say, sort of consolidated into one office, the Investigatory Powers Commissioner. That's in, That was done in the uh, Investigatory Powers Act of 2016, which is sort of, we describe it as our license to operate for the internet age. But on top of the Investigatory Powers Commissioner, who has 15 judicial commissioners uh, working for him and, and 50 inspectors and staff or, or thereabouts, um, we have the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, uh, a, a, a senior court in our in our system in the UK. We have the Intelligence and Security Committee, and we have the other uh, courts uh, which may have jurisdiction over some or all of our issues, including the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, the Court of Justice of the European Union in Luxembourg, and even I think they're the only permanent member of the Security Council who um, has adopted mandatory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. So you have a menu. You have a, a, a number of different options um, for, for oversight. And I can tell you as someone who's dealing with the regime as it is now, um, it is rigorous, it is independent, and the, the calibre of personnel, judges and other uh, um, uh, staff members who are coming into this space is, is impressive. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite an experience to be overseen by them, I can say that much. I bet it. Uh, uh, I've certainly gotten the sense that uh, uh, there has been a great deal of change in the oversight uh, uh, regime. Uh, and uh, I, I certainly don't envy you having gone through oversight. I used to say that uh, um, there were at least six different offices where the head of the office his career would be made if he could catch the National Security Agency breaking the rules. Uh, and uh, my guess is that you have at least two or three such offices yourself. Yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a number of internal sort of um, uh, parts to the system who, whose job it is to help the mission um, comply with the applicable laws and policies that we put in place to get that balance right between protecting privacy and safeguarding security. And, you know, people are going to have different views about this. But for us, the, 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 way, the weighing of those two key principles has been um, done by our parliament in this Investigatory Powers Act. And what we're trying to do internally, uh, or what we are doing internally, is putting in place this, the culture, the systems, the training, um, and um, the, the, the engagement with our oversight um, so that we can get it right. Because everyone, are, everyone I've come across, GCHQ, wants to comply, wants to follow the rules. They want, that, they, they, they want to follow the law, but they also want the legitimacy that that democratic oversight comes with. 
So one of the things that um, at least GCHQ has had to worry about, I think there's less concern at the National Security Agency, is what the um, law of war uh, says, or, you know, what restrictions the law of war might impose on uh, the, the the kinds of uh, activities that both GCHQ and NSA have been engaged in, uh, uh, principally cyber um, uh, actions, uh, whether for espionage or for other purposes. Uh, uh, how much does the law of war enter into the job that uh, that you have to do, Doug? Sir, it's certainly part of the picture, and it might be helpful just to put it in a bit of context, because one thing um, that... Um, hopefully won't surprise people, um, uh, but it sometimes does, is that we, we comply with all the applicable law, whether it be UK law, the Euro European legal regimes that may apply, the European Court of Human Rights, EU law, where it, uh, where they're, um, uh, where it bites, uh, but also international law. Um, that's sort of written into the, the code of the British government, um, and that applies to GCHQ, uh, at the other intelligence agencies, as it does to any other part of government. What that means in practice is we both look at, as I mentioned before, the kind of privacy angle, the intrusions into privacy, the human rights uh, uh, implications of what we do, if you like, at the front end. But we're also looking at the back end, the uses to which our material might be put. So GCHQ has got two, uh, sort of three basic missions to provide intelligence, to bring about effects and to um, safeguard cybersecurity. Um, we do that for the purposes of national security, uh, economic well-being, and the prevention and detection of serious crime. That might come in to, to give it life. That might uh, sort of be best exemplified by our work um, supporting uh, UK uh, counter-terrorism efforts um, uh, to help bring down rings of child sex offenders online to help find, call out and stop hackers, whether they be criminals or actors of foreign states. Uh, but it also involves supporting the military, which is a role which goes right back uh, to our, our founding uh, um, uh, practices and our history uh, and our centenaries coming up next year, where we're going to be both looking back to, to successful um, incidents in our in our um a history such as Bletchley Park, where with others, Americans, Poles, uh, and a, a plethora of international experts, we helped crack the Enigma codes and the work of today that we're doing to support the military. And that might be where um, a, a whole range of international legal rules come into play. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the, the British, the then uh, uh, British Attorney General, Jeremy Wright, made a, made a speech on this. And part of that is the, the international humanitarian law, the law of war, but it's not the full picture. It's cited in the in the in the sort of wider framework of of, of international law. And I think, and I'll, I'll I'll stop after this point. I I think you can you can sort of overplay the the militarization of cyberspace in some uh, situations. There's a lot of cyber activity and intrusion that happens below the level of an armed conflict. And I think one of the the, the the key challenges is how do we as state responsible actors who um, want a rules-based international order, how do we address those um, incidents below uh, the level of war, below, in that sort of grey area? And that's one of the challenges we're, we're, we're most focused on, on um, in GCAQ. NSA, of course, um, has famously set, or the, the military has created the Cyber Command, which is overseen by the head of NSA, but uh, there's a lot of effort to uh, uh, separate the two quite completely and then um, put NSA in a position where it is supporting Cyber Command. Uh, a, and that means that the legal advisors for Cyber Command are different from the general counsel of NSA. Um, how does that compare to the organization uh, in the UK, uh, when you support military, are you operational or is there somebody else who would consider themselves the equivalent of cyber command? So we don't have a, a cyber command as such, but what we do is um, it, it's, so there's two there's two parts to this and they both overlap and interrelate. The first part is, as I said, one of GCHQ's fundamental roles is military support. And so uh, we that's part of our, our core mission. And it's something we do um, whenever required. That might be 
uh, uh, that might be providing a range of functions and support uh, facilities to, to the military. And, and when we do that, we're looking to integrate with them and support them. On the other side, um, uh, w- w- we um, have military uh, working for us. That's built into our um, sort of founding statute in the Intelligence Services Act of 1994. And when the military are, are working with and assisting GCHQ, they are actually considered uh, for the purposes of our capabilities as part of GCHQ. They retain you know, their own rank structure, discipline and so on, but they are um, considered as part of GCHQ and therefore the level of integration we have gives them access to our capabilities. And they, in doing so, they have to follow our rules and are subject to the same training, compliance and cultural requirements that I, that I was talking about before. I, I think given the challenges in this space, um, further and deeper integration will be needed in future. And I'm sure um, I, I would predict sort of... Uh, um, and news on this front before too long. So one of the things that um, the U.S. has been struggling with and other countries has been struggling with, and and, and your uh, uh, attorney general uh, laid out the U.K. view pretty clearly, is what are the international rules that govern operations in cyberspace? Uh, how, to what extent and how does the traditional law of armed conflict apply to uh, the uh, uh, operations in, cyber, in cyberspace. I I'm, tend to be skeptical of efforts to uh, construct even modest sets of rules that translate to the law of armed conflict uh, directly. Uh, my sense is the UK has been much more focused on establishing that what it is doing is consistent with the law of armed conflict um, and that there are rules. Uh, do you see a differentiation among countries, especially uh, Western countries, in terms of their enthusiasm for laying out the details of the the armed conflict rules that they think apply to them in cyberspace? I I think there's more we agree on than than we disagree. And I think that this is still an emerging area so that, you know, there's there's plenty of room for further fruitful discussion. I mean, the the UK, uh, like other Western countries that that, that share our values, wants to be open and clear about the, 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 the rules that we are bound by. Um, we we think, or at least uh, we hope that in doing so, we're not only um, demonstrating uh, the, our commitment to that rules-based international order that's for us a cornerstone of our foreign policy, but we also hope to shape the understanding and the and the development of the rules, and that's by populating um, the debate with as much state practice uh, and and uh, views about that opinion juris as we as we can. Um, and to me, the question is not anymore whether international law applies in this area. It's how it applies and whether it's enough. And that's something our attorney general said earlier this year. Thinking about that, obviously, at the end of the day, international law is the practice of nations when they think they are doing something that they must do. Uh, and I noticed that uh, uh, the attorney general uh, quite rightly said uh, there are rules about Uh, international humanitarian rules with respect to the law of war, uh, uh, protecting civilians, uh, um, uh, making sure that your actions are proportionate. Um, And yet, if if I were asked, is it proportionate when you have a beef with somebody internationally to come up with a piece of malware that wrecks uh, uh, networks far from the field of conflict? uh, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about North Korea or Russia, they've clearly unleashed tools on the world that had uh, effects well outside uh, the borders of the state they seem to be in- interested in influencing. Um, and there wasn't any sign that they spent 10 minutes thinking, gee, what would happen if this particular tool escaped the Ukraine or uh, 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 spread around the world and uh, bricked a bunch of computers in uh, you know, the National Health Service or where have you. I, I, I guess my question is, um, how does it feel to be announcing rules of proportionate response and proportionate activity uh, uh, in a context where it isn't at all clear that the people that 
are our most active adversaries recognize those limitations. I can see the challenge entirely. I mean, for me, there's 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 two parts to the response. The first is that the the the, the way international law applies in this area, at least as we see it, and as uh, uh, as we've set out publicly and hope to. To, to, to develop further in public um, in, in future, at least I, I would hope so. Um, you, you can actually respond effectively and robustly, but do so responsibly and lawfully. And we're trying to make the case for that. We're trying to demonstrate that. We're following up with practical examples of what uh, types of behavior are, should be considered in which category and what's beyond the pale, basically. The, the second part of it is, um, you say, you know, why should we bother with this if other countries or if our potential adversaries aren't, aren't doing it. And to me, that's about what kind of countries we want to be. And it's about um, the, the integrity and security of uh, a new domain of life, this, the cyber world, which impacts everything that uh, uh, we're doing, um, into, <laughs> impacts the way we're carrying out this interview. Um, uh, and for me, it's just not law to one side. It wouldn't be a responsible or even sensible option for the countries that uphold the international order to be acting indiscriminately or disproportionately. It's not in our interest to do so. And I come back to the first point, the law sets sensible parameters around this, but allows you to act and act um, uh, necessarily uh, proportionally, but vigorously. Yes, I, I, I see the point. Uh, uh, we can certainly act vigorously. Whether acting vigorously is sufficient to deter the kinds of activities that we've seen from adversaries is a different question. I, uh, there is not much sign that uh, at least the Russians are reducing their activity or even showing much sign that they're afraid of getting caught. Uh, uh, the most remarkable development in the last five years is that the Russians have gone from being very stealthy and very effective at hiding themselves to apparently not giving a damn whether they get caught, uh, even with their uh, uh, their Uber receipts leaving le- leading from uh, GRU headquarters to the uh, um, to the airport when they're carrying out uh, uh, missions. Uh, and so, at the end of the day, if we can't deter with the tools that we think we have, um, then it's not clear we can enforce the rules that we think exist. I see the point. I mean, my answer would be that we we are deterring, that we are um, by calling out Russian actions. And and we saw um, the the Foreign Secretary in the UK um, uh, made an announcement uh, recently calling out the activities of the GRU um, and attributing that, uh, attributing those activities to them and to the Russian state. And that attribution was backed up by, I think, over 20 other countries. So by calling out this kind of behavior, by acting in tandem in, whether it be bilaterally through multilateral institutions such as the OPCW in The Hague, I think we are, uh, as, a, uh, uh, as a group of countries with um, like-minded interests and values, calling out this type of behavior, showing it has consequences and demonstrating that it's, um, it's in no one's interest for state actors to be damaging the, the, the security and prosperity of the globe, and including their own citizens and companies, by by such reckless and indiscriminate action, as as the foreign secretary has said publicly. I agree. They, it, it isn't at all clear that this is in Russia's even sh- Russia's short term uh, interest. Uh, I, and it, I am encouraged that uh, a number of European states, mostly led by uh, the UK and GCHQ, have begun attributing attacks uh, with more confidence. I, that inevitably raises the question, um, how good do you think attribution is these days? Are you comfortable that uh, uh, attributions that we're starting to see are well-grounded in intelligence uh, and could be supported uh, uh, if uh, someone with clearances wanted to see the evidence? I think so. And I think the idea that attribution in cyberspace is somehow this impossible task that we shouldn't even try uh, to, to get past is, is, I think, something that people involved in this area um, are, are mo- have moved away from some time ago. Um, I mean, uh, and there's a legal angle here too. The, 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 the rules, the international law rules around attributing any kind of activity, not just cyber activity, are, have a role to play here. The, 
the international standards are, are quite pragmatic on attributing activity. Um, uh, and of course, there are significant technical and, and political dimensions too. And I think we've seen advances in, in sort of a common understanding on each of those areas. Um, the, f- for me, the, the interesting bit um, when you're looking at attribution and um, internally, before you even get to the question of whether you want to do anything publicly, is you've got to ask these sort of basic questions. Um, you've got to ask um, what's been happening, how did this occur, where is it coming from, who do you think is behind it? And crucially, and this is the one le- legally that can be significant in determining your the parameters of your response options, why? And that can be quite hard. And that's where you've got to bring to bear, I think, a, a, some, in some cases, decades of understanding of a particular actor's activity from a wealth of sources, whether they be intelligence or open source diplomatic reporting. And you need to act with your partners and allies. Uh, and, and in doing so, I think you know, the, the, the recent attributions of the GRU generally, the NotPetya attacks, WannaCry, we've demonstrated this can be done. Um, and I don't think we should um, uh, fear attribution. It's, it, can, it can be difficult. Um, at least when you b- before you start assembling the bits of information, but we we are not in GCHQ and in the UK are far from alone in having a a, a, a real wealth of expertise and experience to bring to bear on this problem. In the uh, the US, we've been doing attribution a while, and the next logical step has been retribution. Uh, we've indicted. Uh, Really, now I'm not, I think I've lost count of how many uh, foreign intelligence officials uh, we have indicted, uh, and indeed uh, at least one that we have managed to arrest and extradite, uh, uh, although not exactly in uh, a precisely a cyber uh, espionage uh, agent. Uh, should we be expecting uh, similar actions uh, uh, from the UK as as your attribution confidence grows? GCHQ would be an, is an organization that does work with law enforcement and it would be up to law enforcement and the independent prosecutorial authorities to decide in any given individual case or incident whether there's enough evidence to bring charges. But um, uh, we have seen in a non-cyber environment the willingness of the um, independent investigative and prosecutorial, prosecutorial authorities to indicate in the, in the, in the case of the uh, Salisbury incident uh, a, a willingness to pursue criminal uh, actions. Um, um, and there's obviously that that type of ability will depend on the evidence in every given case. But the, the, the will is there should the evidence be there. And I think in our country, just as in others that follow, follow the uh, have independent um, authorities in this space would follow the evidence where it leads. So uh, the other thing that has happened recently is the uh, uh, relative to international uh, legal developments is that the U.S., has revived the United Nations group of experts talks on um, the law that applies to cyber activities, uh, the international law that applies. Uh, This time, apparently, they're proposing to go forward without the Russians, without the Chinese. And it was conflicts between the United States and the Russians and the Chinese that uh, led to the collapse of the GGE uh, effort uh, a year ago. if I remember, the UK is part of those talks. Uh, uh, do you have an idea what um, kind of progress could be achieved and where in a context where there are uh, fewer adversaries and more like-minded participants? For me, I think um, it's worth um, it's worth continuing to talk about these things. What I said before was, I think we've got to get get to a common understanding of how the current pl- uh, law applies, and 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 then look at the question of whether whether it's enough. To me, there's value in t- in having multiple strands of communication and diplomacy on this. Um, uh, th- there's value in talking to those who are like-minded with you to form coalitions, but there's equal value in talking to those with whom you don't agree. Uh, and uh, history has shown us. Um, a, a number of areas where um, countries with very diff- different interests, even countries which had been uh, um, in, in open competition or hostility in some parts of the world, came together and, and, and uh, said, hey, look, this is an area where we 
we should come to some agreement that that type of activity is off limits. If you look at the early development of the law of war, for example, like it was Tsar Alexander II who first proposed the um, uh, Petersburg Declaration on ex- uh, l- limiting the use of exploding bullets in the 1860s. Uh, and so there, there's value in, in, in multiple strands of uh, dip- diplomatic um, uh, engagement in this space. Yeah, I, I, I've often wondered whether even, certainly the Chinese and probably even the Russians, you would have thought could agree that trying to bring down the financial system by attacking banks in a serious uh, fashion, I'm not talking about intelligence collection, but actually just trying to uh, either steal money or, or wreck records, uh, um, just about everybody, with the possible exception of the um, North Koreans, the Iranians, and maybe increasingly the, the Russians, has a stake in a functioning uh, international financial system. Um, and a, it's it's puzzled me, but the uh, the talks so far at GGE have focused not on trying to find sectors where there ought to be um, agreement not to act, but more looking for principles that are more applicable, but maybe less actionable. Sure, I, I would agree there's something in that. Maybe it's time to keep talking about the general principles and how they apply, but also look at where specific areas of activity where we might find more common cause. And I think it's worth a try. One one thing you may not be able to answer, but I have been struck by the fact that uh, um, at least the North Koreans are widely reported, uh, since they have so little uh, internet connectivity at home, uh, to have uh, sent their hackers abroad. Uh, and um, then the question becomes, if they're operating from a third country, what can countries that have been attacked from that third country do? And of course, famously in the area of terrorism, uh, the answer is if the home country, if the host country is unable or unwilling to take action to stop the attacks, then uh, the uh, people who are the countries that are under attack can engage in self-help. That at least has been U.S. doctrine. I don't know whether that's U.K. doctrine, and I don't know that anybody has yet applied that to cyber activity. I'll give you a chance to say as much as you'd like on that topic. Well, to to me, it really depends on uh, where activity has come come from and what your options are in that space. So we would, uh, our, our, our favored approach would be to work through the the, the the most effective uh, um, uh, means possible, and that will often be in countries uh, with well functioning law enforcement systems to engage on that on those channels. Um, where there are uh, where that's not uh, possible or is unlikely to be effective, there may be other options. But we would be applying the 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 the, the principles of international law as set out in the attorney's speech. So we would think that certain activities, for example, threat or use of force would be off the table unless one of the the usual uh, uh, exemptions applied. We would be not looking at the um, uh, going uh, past the the prohibition on uh, uh, the non-intervention in the domestic internal affairs of a state um, unless we were in sort of countermeasures territory uh, dealing taking necessary and proportionate action in response to a prior unlawful act by that state. And then there may be other um, options available, including, you know, the good old fashioned diplomacy, uh, telling people, hey, that, do you know that's going on? Have you, have, what are you doing about it? Can we help? Um, so I just think you've got to look at the it's hard to give generic sweeping um, answers to this without getting into you know, the, 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 the specific circumstances of the in- incident and the whereabouts of the individual or group that's to, that may be doing it. So one last topic I just wanted to raise, because again, it, it indicates um, the differences between the US and the UK system, um, and unusually to the advantage of GCHQ. Um, in the US, domestic civilian uh, cybersecurity is the responsibility of the newly named, or at least about to be named, uh, cyber security and uh, infrastructure uh, security agency. Um, and um, in the UK, that responsibility falls on the uh, 
uh, national cybersecurity, uh, the, the NCSC, I'm not sure what the C stands for. Uh, and it is very close to GCHQ in a way that uh, and, uh, the DHS is not close to NSA. I, can you explain what the relationship is between NCSC uh, and GCHQ? It's quite simple, really, because the NCSC, the National Cybersecurity Centre, is a part of GCHQ. It's an integral core part of what we do. And while it's not, um, uh, the, the, the NC itself is um, only coming up for, for two years old, um, that's part of our mission has been something that's been around for decades. What, what the NCSC does is uh, consolidate, bring together, um, unite all the different bits of the British government that were looking at this bring to bear the kind of technical uh, expertise from all those uh, parts of, of, of government and its agencies, the, the, the technical focus and the intelligence capabilities of GCHQ, uh, and uh, a sort of new mission to engage, to serve um, the government and the British public. The, 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 the sort of the aspiration is to, to make the UK the, the safest place to, um, to be online and do business uh, online. The, the, what it's done over the past couple of years is dealt with, um, I think, over a thousand significant incidents and, and many more that don't meet that threshold. Um, uh, a large chunk of those come from uh, foreign state actors um, and the other, we're looking at cyber criminals. Um, uh, uh, there's been a number of initiatives to, to sort of engage. This isn't a solely government activity, as you, as you and I'm sure many of your listeners well know. We're engaging with private, the private sector, with other bits of government, with the academic institutions, with NGOs, with individuals. Um, and we want to bring to bear the best sort of information advice we can. We've given, the NCSC's given advice to boards on the type of questions they should be asking in sort of um, executing their own responsibilities in the space. It's given advice to law firms in the UK that's been welcomed by the Law Society. So... It's out there trying to engage, um, and it's doing so with a, a, a num in a number of partnerships, including internationally. Um, but it's very much a, a, a part of um, GCHQ, uh, and that comes with, um, you know, it's not without legal tension. Um, but um, so far, uh, that's the, uh, something we've been able to, to, to manage. And, and by and large, it's, it's a... Um model that has been imitated by the other English-speaking countries. We're all unique, I think, in having decided that cybersecurity should be divided from our signals intelligence operation, at least for the civilian sector. Um, so usually at this point in, in the uh, uh, interview, I ask our guests, uh, so where are you going to be appearing next that people want to come meet you? But uh, since you're uh, at least a little undercover, you probably won't be advertising your appearances. Uh, uh, let me ask, is there something, some event coming up uh, that GCHQ is releasing uh, new materials? Are you going to attribute a few more attacks soon? Uh, is there anything else that our listeners should be watching for? So we're we're sort of unusual in that we're we're a secret um, global intelligence organization, but we're trying to be as open and transparent about what we do as as we can. And so there there are now a, a number of different channels for, uh, uh, which you can hear hear from us if should you so choose. We um, have a, websites both for uh, GCHQ um, where you can uh, read the speeches of my director Jeremy Fleming. You can look at the NCSC website for the latest. Uh, advice or announcements about uh, incidents. The Foreign Office um, usually leads on uh, uh, external uh, attributions. And um, we even have our own Twitter account. Um, so you can sign up for that um, uh, should you be a tweeter. Uh, I, I, I apologize for not having done it. I will do it today for sure. I'll be following you. Uh, I, and uh, Doug, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I really do appreciate your uh, uh, openness, your willingness to, to discuss practically everything I asked, uh, and uh, uh, your engagement with the broader community on some of these uh, issues, which I think in the long run is going to stand GCHQ in good stead. Uh, so thank you for coming in. A real pleasure, and thanks, thanks Stuart, for these searching questions. All right. Thanks to Doug. Thanks to Nick Weaver. Thanks to Matt uh, Hyman for joining me. This has been episode 235 of the Cyber Law Podcast. 
brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future guest interviewees, uh, and we'll send you a coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, send those to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I have begun gradually, a bit by bit, uh, putting uh, stories that uh, we think we'll cover on Twitter again. So if you follow at Stuart Baker on Twitter or in LinkedIn, you'll start to see them. Happy to get comments on them, uh, both substance of the story and suggestions about whether they're worth talking about. Uh, give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, uh, Stitcher, uh, um, uh, Pocket Cast, whatever you use to download our uh, uh, podcast. We'd love to get a good review from you. Uh, coming up, uh, we've got uh, Chris Krebs, soon to be director of the now properly named uh, uh, Cyber and uh, Infrastructure Security uh, Agency, uh, talking about election security before the election. Uh, so we don't have much time to get that one in. Uh, and Dr. Dipayan Ghosh, the co-author of a new report, Digital Deceit 2, the policy agenda to fight disinformation on the internet. Uh, color me a little skeptical, so it might be an interesting exchange. And finally, show credits. Uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. God, I just feel so much like NPR when I do this. I love it. Uh, Michael Beaver is an intern, and I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>